on that mountain speaking to his disciples that everything concerns this idea of righteousness. That's a pervasive idea all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You could say that the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of righteousness, that which is perfect and pleasing to God, that which is entirely in accordance with God's will, God's law, that which is manifested in the very person of Jesus. In his character, his demeanor, his heart, his mind, in every respect, he was righteous. And so the title for last week was Righteous Religion. We now come to piety or religious practice. And we're looking at what does it look like to have piety that is righteous. Formal kind of religious elements that are done in a righteous kind of way. And so we had three ideas we looked at last week, the presupposed practices, and we we understood from the passage that there are certain religious practices that Jesus assumes will happen. In this case, praying, fasting, giving, giving, when you give, dot, 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 when you pray, dot, 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 when you fast, he accepts that these are part of the lives of his disciples. So these are presupposed Practices They're assumed by Jesus. We also saw the prideful pitfall. That there is a very real and even imminent danger that we can fall into pride and vanity while practicing such, pra- while practicing such things. So there are practices that are assumed that are part of the lives of Christians. But as we're going out to do these things, there is a pit that we could fall in called pride and vanity. Which comes from the heart. We talked about that. And then we looked at the petty payoff. That when we do fall into pride and vanity, there essentially is a reward replacement that takes place. We replace God's eternal reward with the temporary praise of men. That's what happens when in the process of carrying out our religious practices, we fall into the pit of pride and vanity. What happens in that moment, the consequence, the derivative of that is that we, we replace this eternal reward that we receive from our Heavenly Father. We replace that with this fleeting, ephemeral, temporary, earthly praise from other people. It's a hard passage. It's a hard topic. I had a few of you come up to me after last week and say, this, this, this was really convicting. This was really hard. And it was, it was hard preparing it. It always is. But the Sermon on the Mount in particular, and this passage in particular, as we come into chapter 6. I want you to hear how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this passage or his interaction with this passage. He says this, we may as well realize at the outset that this chapter 6, what we're in right now, what we've just entered into, is again a very searching one. Again, because all of the Sermon on the Mount is. But this one, too. Indeed, we can go further and say that it is a very painful one. It's a painful one. And let me submit to you this, that a lot of scripture is painful because we are sinful. And when God's word hits us, 
It's meant to create a kind of pain, a kind of holy angst, a kind of holy conviction and repentance that creates godliness in us. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. And so if our encounter with the Word of God doesn't do that, we may not be encountering the Word of God. He goes on. I sometimes think that it is one of the most uncomfortable chapters to read in the entire scriptures. Matthew chapter 6. It probes and examines and holds a mirror up before us. And it will not allow us to escape. There is no chapter which is more calculated to promote self-humbling and humiliation than this particular one. So if you did not leave here last week feeling the weight of that... Maybe you need to engage a little more deeply with what we're encountering here. He goes on to say, here is a chapter that brings us face to face with ourselves and enables us to see ourselves exactly as we are. But, I repeat, thank God for it, he says. Because it is only the man who has truly seen himself for what he is who is likely to fly to Christ and to seek to be filled with the Spirit of God who alone can burn out of him that image burn out of him the vestiges of self and everything that tends to mar his Christian life and living so maybe you're not you don't fall into the category of those who are sort of listening to this and it's not really hitting It's not really penetrating. You're not really letting it in. Maybe that's not you. But maybe you fall into the category of those who are hearing this. And you decide with lots of determination and resolve. That you're going to sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And you're going to make it happen. You're going to make sure that when you pray. You're focused on God alone. And no one else around you and so forth. And maybe that's been your attitude all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And what I would submit to you is that's not the attitude we ought to have. There is discipline and resolve that's necessary, but it must come from the Spirit. And it must come from the Spirit as we look to Christ, the only righteous one and the only one who changes our hearts and makes us like himself. So maybe there are some of us who are not flying to Christ, but who are flying to self or flying to some other place. As we go through these hard words. In other words, let these words be hard. Let them be painful and uncomfortable. But let them drive you to Christ. And no other place. So today we're going to face the pain and the discomfort head on. As we come to the three practices that Jesus uses to illustrate righteous religion. And so, verses 2 to 4, when you give to the needy, verses 5 to 6, and when you pray, and then verses 16 to 18, when you fast. We're going to deal with all of these today as a follow-up to the introduction that we got last week from chapter 6, verse 1. So the title for the sermon today is Before Whose Eyes. Before whose eyes do you live your life? Before whose eyes. So let's read Matthew chapter 6. Verses 2 to 6. Now we're going to skip over the part that goes into the Lord's Prayer. 
So we're, we're dealing with each of these together because they are a unit. I mean, there's a clear parallel structure with each of these. So many of the words are repeated. Giving, praying, fasting. We're going to go ahead and treat those as a bundle today. It's coming off of the introduction from last week. And then we'll come to the section on the Lord's Prayer after that. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 to 6 and 16 to 18. And if you don't mind, would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is not the word of man. Everything else you will read is the word of man. This is the word of God. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 to 6, says this. This, thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then jump down to verses 16 to 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's take this time to go to the Lord in prayer, ask for His help today, and ask that He will do His work. You know, as we prayed in in the room over here with the band this morning. We don't know what God wants to do today. We, we have these general ideas from scripture. We know the kinds of things that God does when his people gather together, but we don't know what God is doing in each heart. We don't know what God is doing in each family. We don't know how God is drawing his people closer to himself and reconciling them to one another and how God is bringing sinners to repentance and saving faith in Jesus. And so let's pray that God will just do his work. His sovereign will will be accomplished here today as his word goes forth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray together as a body. Lord, we thank you for this very clear teaching. We thank you, God, for how your son so explicated your perfect law and how he himself 
is the expression of your perfect law because he is the greatest expression of your character. He is the exact imprint of your nature. And we thank you that in the Sermon on the Mount, our King, our Lord, our suffering Savior speaks to us. And he speaks to us not in veiled, hidden speech, but clearly that we might love him and obey him and live his life in the world. By the power of your spirit. God help us to be transformed today. We are a needy people. And you tell us to be poor in spirit. And oftentimes we are not. Oftentimes we are filled with pride and self-reliance. And when we appear to be poor in spirit. It is false humility. God would you forgive us. And would you make us truly poor in spirit. Truly those who mourn over our sins and who look to you, who fly to Christ for the forgiveness that only his blood provides and for the strength that only his spirit gives. God, would you help us today to respond to your word? Would you do what only you can do in each heart? And Father, would we leave here different today? Would we leave here more Engaged with your people, more engaged with the world around us, more attentive to your presence as we go through our lives in prayer. Would we, would we leave here today less pretentious, less inclined to perform, and more thoughtful of your eyes rather than those of our peers? God, help us seek your face, seek your favor, and please you alone. Take away from us all fear of man and desire to please man, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think about practicing our righteousness before the eyes of God, rather than the eyes of men, I want us to hone in on three contrasts that we have up here on this slide. I think that these are... Three, three contrasts that, that surface as we come to this, this passage and the repetition, really, of, of what we find in verse 1. We find that expanded and then repeated in three instances. And I think these are the three contrasts that we find as we go through these. Showy or secretive, lying or loving, faithless or faithful. And we'll spend most of our time on the first because the second two kind of pick up out of that and I think help us to understand what's going on in the hearts of those who are more showy than secretive. Why? Why is that the case? So let's go to this first point. Showy or secretive. Jesus gives three illustrations of the overall principle that he is trying to get across. As I've said before, giving to the needy is the first, praying is the second, and fasting is the third. Last week, I made the point that these really have to do with our relationship to other people. That's where we get the giving. Our relationship to God, that vertical uh, communion with God, that's where we see the praying. And then our relationship to ourselves. As we see the self-denial and mortification of the flesh and of sin in us and dying to self that's kind of packed into the idea of fasting. So we see that each of these are present. These various dynamics are present even with these three illustrations. But let's look at each of them in a little more detail. I think we need to kind of unpack exactly what is going on here with each of these ideas. So the first is giving. 
And that is the focus of verses 2 to 4, that little paragraph there, or part of the paragraph, verses 2 to 4. The word used here comes from the root word for mercy. So it's kind of like saying, do your mercy. To give to the needy is to show mercy. It is to have pity or compassion on them in their distress. We know that Jesus has shown us mercy because he has seen us in our distress. When you open up Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and you get those first three verses that describe us as being children of wrath, by nature children of wrath. Dead in trespasses and sins. Enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air. When you see that description of us before we come to Christ. And then you get to verse 4 of Ephesians 2. And it says, but God. That's where you see his mercy. That in his love and his kindness towards us. His mercy towards us. His seeing us in our plight. Jesus looked upon us and he said, I have compassion on them. If you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, truly a converted Christian, it is because the Lord God before the foundation of the earth looked upon you with pity. It's because Jesus Christ, as he was hanging on the cross, looked at you in your enslavement to sin and you're being under God's just wrath and judgment and he had pity on you. He had compassion on you and he took hold of you. And saved you, liberating you from the power of sin. So he had mercy. And this idea of God's people throughout the Old Testament having mercy or showing mercy on people through giving to the needy can be seen all throughout the Old Testament. But I just want to give you two passages in particular. So first from the law, those first five books of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15.11 says this. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Poverty, a part of human existence in a fallen world. There will never cease to be poor in the land. You just forget about them and leave them alone and let them just be in it. No, therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That's an amazing idea that when we give, we are really giving to the Lord. The language of Proverbs, we are lending to the Lord. When we give to the needy, yes, we are helping the needy, but ultimately we are lending to the Lord. And the image that is given, and this is incredible because we know that we are filled with sin and nothing we have is deserved. It is all grace and mercy that we give that to the Lord and he repays it. Even though it is the giving itself that came from him. He gave the grace to do the giving Yet, when we do it, he repays us and rewards us for it. And so giving was a key aspect of the life of God's people. And Jesus is dealing with this. He understands this. He assumes that this is going to happen among his disciples, among Christians. What about praying? This is the focus of verses 5 to 6. Which then leads into a discussion on prayer further, on the Lord's Prayer. One of the best illustrations that we have for the importance of prayer among the Jews is the prophet Daniel. Some of you are familiar with Daniel. You have seen this passage before. But there was a decree that 
went out because some men had come to the king, King Darius, and they had tried to trap Daniel. Daniel was made kind of a right-hand man of the king of Persia. And these guys are jealous because Daniel has this great standing. He, a Jew, not even a Persian, he, a Jew, has this great standing among the Persians. And so these guys are jealous. They want to be the right-hand man of the king. So they, they devise a plan. They trick the king into signing an edict. And for the Medes and the Persians, these things could not be reversed according to their law. And so what did they do? They, they tricked the king into signing an edict that for 30 days no petition was to be made to any god or man except King Darius. Daniel was a man of God. He loved the Lord. And they could not find anything wrong in his life. Not to say he was perfect. But, but he was blameless. He was above reproach. They could find no way to get at him and bring him down. So in a sneaky way, they decide they're going to have the king sign this edict. Because they know Daniel prays every day. Three times a day. And so they do this and the king doesn't know it. He signs the edict and does not know that he has trapped Daniel with it. And of course, we know the rest of the story, at least some of us do, that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because he does pray. But God delivers him from the mouths of the lions. And then the king then throws those guys and, every, and, and their entire families into the lion's pit. And they begin to be eaten before they even reach the bottom. That's an extra little detail. It's not pertinent to this. But... Just to fill the story out for you. You can, go and, you can go and read it. But this is the description that we get in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had always done. As he had done previously. He was bold and courageous, but the point that I want you to see here is that what Daniel is doing in his prayer life was a part of Jewish life in general. Daniel was exemplary in that he was faithful in this way of prayer. It was not stipulated or mandated that you must pray three times a day, but this is essentially what happened in the Old Testament. Daniel was an example of probably what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing as well. And what all of those who are in Persia who were faithful to the Lord were doing. Prayer was a key part of what it meant to be a Jew. What it meant to be a person of God. Part of the people of God. So that's prayer. Fasting. This is the focus of verses 16 to 18. You'll see that there. And when you fast. This involved going a period of time without food. And so... You may, never, may have never thought about this before, but the, the word breakfast basically means to, bre- well, it's a break fast, right? Break fast. So you've gone a while without food since last night, unless you wake up in the middle of the night and have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something or a grilled cheese. I guess some people do that. But if you have it, you, you, at night you eat and then you wake up in the morning and you have breakfast and you break your fast. So it's a period of time without food. And there was actually only one annual feast that Jews were required to keep. And we read about that in Leviticus 16, 29. It was a feast, a a fast, I'm sorry, a fast associated with the Day of Atonement. 
And it was described this way. They were to humble their souls. It was a special time of self-denial and seeking God. This was a time when they would humble themselves under the Lord and they would seek God for a specific thing or for a specific purpose. And annually it was done around the Day of Atonement as they considered their sins as a nation. But there were a number of fasts that weren't prescribed in the law that the people were not mandated to do, but they did anyway because they loved the Lord. And we see these fasts all throughout the Old Testament. One of the reasons that people fasted in the Old Testament was for mercy or as an act of penitence. They had sinned against God and they humbled themselves before God in the fast. And so we get the example of Nehemiah in chapter 9 verses 1 to 2. The people are hearing the word of God. And, and they're responding to it. It's, it's convicting them. And they, are, they begin to weep and mourn over their sins. And this is what it says. Now on the 24th day of this month. The people of Israel were assembled with fasting. And in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads. It was a way of showing their humility. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. And stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So if we, if we take it in this respect, we understand that when we, come to, when we read the Beatitudes. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then immediately it comes out of that and it says, blessed are those who mourn. That we are talking about this attitude towards our own sinfulness. This attitude towards God's holiness and then considering our sinfulness and in humiliation, in humility, coming to God, recognizing his mercy. Fasting was part of that picture. Also, fasting was done for help in time of need as an expression of dependence on God. Humility and dependence go together. It's the prideful man who says, I can do it on my own. But the humble person says, God, I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And that is, fasting communicates that as well. And so we see that in Esther, another story from Persia, where all the Jews are going to be killed because this man named Haman essentially has tricked the king, also has tricked the king. And Esther is the king's wife, and she is not to go in to, to see him. You're not to go to the king of Persia unless you are summoned. And if you do that, you could be put to death unless the king extends to you an invitation in that moment. So Esther decides that because there's a decree that all the Jews are going to be gathered up and killed, that she's going to go to her husband, the king, whom even as his wife, she's not to approach, and she's going to plead for her people. She's going to go there and ask that the king spare her people. And what does she say to Mordecai, her relative, regarding all of her people, the Jews? In this moment of crisis, this moment of utter need and dependency upon God, this is what she says. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then, then, out of that, out of that humility before God and prayer to God, then I will go to the king. Only then, only then 
though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Well, we know that she didn't perish. Haman perished, just like those guys who wanted to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Esther and her people did not perish. But it was prior to going to the king in this moment of danger that she asked the people to fast and to seek the Lord. So that's another way for mercy, for help in time of need or crisis. But we also have this idea of fasting so that we can help others or giving up for the purpose of giving away. And so I think we get a little indication of this in Job 31.17. John Stott points this out, and I think it's valid. He says this, that, well, this is what Job said. Job says that he had not eaten his morsel alone and left the fatherless without nothing or with nothing. In other words, that Job has food to eat and he looks around and he sees people who don't have food to eat. And rather than just sort of filling up himself with the things that he has, he cuts it off and gives some to someone else. And so I want you to see this interesting thing about fasting. If we just look at these three ideas... Mercy, dependence, and giving up so that we can give. We see how closely connected fasting is to prayer and to giving to the needy. Do you see that? The three really are interconnected. The giving to the needy, the praying, and the fasting. And I just want to ask this question. Have you, as a side note, really, have you considered this, this way of fasting? Have you thought about maybe... For your own fasting, going a, a period of time or, or a, a day in the week or whatever, to not to have something that you normally have or to enjoy some of the comforts that the Lord has blessed you with, to set those aside and to take what you would use for that purpose and give that to the needy. That's a very practical way just to begin to think about what it would look like to apply fasting to our own lives. And as these things are practiced, this giving, this praying, this fasting, and all other things that we would associate with religious observance. These are not exhaustive. They are just examples or illustrations of the kinds of things that we would do in our devotion to God. The kinds of expressions of our piety and our religious devotion. As these things are practiced, Jesus draws a sharp contrast between two ways of doing them. And that's where we get this. Showy. Or secretive. One way is showy. Verse 2. Go ahead and look at verse 2. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. Sounding a trumpet in public or in the place of worship as you give. Now, these guys are going out. It's, Jesus says, do not sound a trumpet as you're giving. Now, there were trumpets in the temple associated with coming and giving alms. And people argue and debate over whether there is a real trumpet in view here and it's somehow associated with some kind of religious observance. But it's probably just a figurative idea. That, you know, the, the idea of you, you sort of make this loud noise or you go out and you begin to give in a very ostentatious, showy, obvious way. Very conspicuous about what you are doing. You're letting everybody know, hey, I'm giving. I'm giving to the poor. Oh, come, poor, come, come. And everyone else is looking at you, respecting you, honoring you, holding you up as a model Jew. And then in verse 5, standing openly in the synagogues and at the street corners as you pray. 
It was nothing unusual for Jews to stand while they prayed. In fact, uh, it was typical that Jews would stand and pray in some kind of way like this. We even see this in the catacombs. You see these pictures of uh, God's people are praying in this way. It was also a very Mesopotamian way to pray, sort of coming out of uh, that part of the world, that this is how you would approach God. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that they are doing this openly in the places of worship and in the street corners. This word for street corners, this idea of the corners of the street, the the image is two broad, wide streets. The word for street is, is a broad road. So you have the intersection of two broad roads. These guys have picked the intersection of 34 and or Bullsboro and Millard Farmer, I guess. All right. Uh, They picked that spot. I mean, this is not just, you know, the corner of two little roads, two little side streets. This is the, the most obvious place they could find where there would be the most people passing by. And Jesus says, do not pray in this way. People were moving through constantly. There would have been many people to see and admire them. Verse 16, having a gloomy and disfigured face while you're fasting. You're enduring this fast and so you make yourself appear To be so beat down by all the troubles of your fasting. So people see you. Oh, must be fasting. Loves the Lord. Person loves the Lord. Right? That's how how we think. And that's exactly what these Pharisees and scribes and many of us even have a tendency to do. The showiness of these ways of practicing religion is found in the motive. Repeated throughout is that they may be praised or seen by others. You see that in the first example, that they may be praised by others. In the second example, with praying, that they may be seen by others. In the third example of fasting, that they may be seen by others. This is the problem. The problem is that the showiness comes up out of the motive. These two are connected. The desire to have people see you and praise you is is connected to the showiness. That is the means by which you get the praise of men. So showy or secretive. Verses 3 to 4, when giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, Jesus says. Now here's an interesting idea. As we're thinking about other people seeing us, As we give, Jesus goes a bit further. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Most people were right-handed, as is the case today. And so you would give with that strong hand. You would give with your right hand. You see that also with the right cheek, the hitting of the cheek. You would give with that hand. And he's saying, do not even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I want to submit this to you. I think what one of the applications that we should get from this is that in our giving, in our doing good deeds, there should be a kind of self-forgetfulness. So think about that for a moment. Maybe you don't do your deeds in front of other people, or you're at least not conscious of that. You're not conscious of the fact that you're giving so that others might see you and praise you. But maybe on your drive home, There's a kind of subconscious just sort of stewing on it. Sort of celebrating it in your own heart. You know, just sort of patting yourself on the back. That can happen so subtly. And those thoughts can be fleeting. They come in, they go out. They come back in. They go out, they come back in. And we are just celebrating ourselves. And I think 
what we should understand by this left hand and right hand business is that when we do something, we forget about it. We move on, not seeking the praise of others and not seeking the praise from our own hearts. Verse 6, when praying, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Interesting, in houses in that day, thieves could actually dig through the outside wall of a house. Incredible. You imagine that? You didn't have to lock your doors or your windows. Someone could dig through your wall and get to your house and take your TV or whatever else. But that was the case. And so people would tend to put their most valuable things in the very center of the home in a kind of secret room which could be locked. That is the idea being presented here. This, this inner secret room. And guess what? Nobody can see you there. Nobody. All alone with God. He can see in the secret place before his eyes alone. And then verses 17 and 18, when fasting, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. If you're fasting, no one should know about it. No one should know. It's between you and the Lord. And if even you're a little bit out of sorts, get in sorts. Don't give any impression that you're doing these things before the Lord. So the big question for us is, back to the title. Before whose eyes are we doing what we do? Before the eyes of God or before the eyes of men? And I like the way that Kent Hughes probes into our hearts with these penetrating questions on prayer. So I just want to ask you a few questions that I think help us to do business with some of this material as we think about our own lives as Christians. Because remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, beware, caution. This happens. We do this moment by moment. We fall into this pit often. And so consider these questions. Ask yourself these. Do I pray more frequently or more fervently when I am with God than when I am in public? If God could record you when you pray in front of people and then record you when you pray alone, would this one be really robust and long and frequent and rich and this one just be kind of uh, haphazard and and and? You know, maybe even sporadic. What would would it be? I think what he's holding out for us is that this one should be powerful and inflamed with God's spirit. And that this should only be an outworking of that. As we pray undoubtedly in front of one another in groups and Bible studies up here in the service. These things are happening in corporate worship. But that these things are an overflow of what we do privately when we're alone with the Lord. What do I think of when I am praying around others? What are you thinking about? Is my mind more on them or on God? Are you in the presence of God? We all fail here. Are we praying to God, conscious of Him, in faith, what His Word says about Him, meditating on His presence, or are we kind of here, thinking about those who may be listening or watching? Am I looking for just the right phrase? That's perfect. We don't do that. We don't do that consciously maybe even. But inside we're, we're thinking that. Am I a spectator to my own performance? That was a good prayer. 
That was a good prayer. I like that one. I bet they liked it too. Did we do that? Is that the way we think? We may never voice these things. Of course not. That's shameful. We don't voice these things. But are they going on? Jesus says beware. Because they are going on. And it's not okay. It dishonors God. He ends with this. Is it possible that the reason more of my prayers are not answered. Is that I am more concerned about bringing my prayer to men. Than to God. The question is this. Are we even praying? Are we even praying? You know, have you been convicted of this? In, in, you know, I, I, uh, I was, Jennifer and I often laugh about this, but when I'm in the car a lot, I, I, I pray and I talk to myself. So if you ever see me driving down the road, you think, whoa, what's he doing? So I'll, I'll, I'll pray and think things through. That's just the way I've always done it. And so sometimes I, I think I'm praying, but I'm not. I'm just talking to myself. I'm just thinking out loud. And you know, we do that before the Lord and there's fluidity there. And I don't want to make it all rigid or anything like that. But what I am saying is, the question is, are we praying? Are we praying? And when other people are there, are we performing or are we praying? And many of our prayers are not answered because they're not prayers. They're not prayers. And since this contrast between showy and secretive is not merely about the how, but rather the heart... Hence the focus on the motive. We are brought to two further contrasts. And this is where we'll finish up this morning. Quickly on these further two contrasts. Which really go beyond the external. We're looking at the showiness of it. And we're looking at the secretiveness of it. The secrecy of it. But now we need to go a little deeper into the heart because that's the real problem. It's not the showiness or the secrecy. It's what lies beneath that. As we've already seen, it's the motive and the heart work workings that are beneath it. So that brings us to our second point, and that is lying or loving. There's one word that stands at the center of all of this showy religion. One word, and you know it very well. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Verse 2. As the hypocrites do. Verse 5. You must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16. Like the hypocrites. And in every instance when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23. We get that long discourse where Jesus is sort of bringing judgment upon them. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. What? Hypocrites. This describes them entirely. All the little things they do that he goes on to blast really are just manifestations of the deeper problem, which is hypocrisy. You hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite comes from the theater. It is a word of the theater. It essentially means an actor in a play. What is a hypocrite? It's an actor in a play who would wear a mask and play a role. The actor would pretend to be someone or something that he is not. Now, we all expect this in a play, right? Of course. That's what it is. That's what it purports to be. It's a movie. It's a play. It's a TV show. And these people are actors. The things they say, the facial expressions that they make, the things they do are all for a show. And we're entertained by that. So we expect it. But we don't expect it in real life. In real life, it is nothing less than a lie. Hypocrisy, mask wearing, is nothing less than a lie. And here's why. Think about this. I don't know if you've ever considered this. The act is not really being performed. Have you ever thought about that? 
The reason it's a lie, the reason hypocrisy is a lie is because the act itself is not really being performed. The act and its intrinsic meaning and value. What is giving? What is prayer? What is fasting? What is it? It's meaning. And what is it to, to do? What, why is it celebrated? It's value. It's function. Those things are irrelevant in hypocrisy. These things are not in view. Instead, what is in view is the usefulness. Think about that. The usefulness of giving. The usefulness of praying. And the usefulness of fasting in gaining the praise of others. Just tools. These things don't mean anything. Giving doesn't matter. Praying doesn't matter. Fasting doesn't matter. In other words, no giving, praying, fasting is really taking place. It's nothing more than a show. It's a lie. And here's the thing. God uses lies. God uses everything. He governs this world. So even in our hypocrisy-laced good deeds, God still gets glory. The effect itself... God will still bring to fruition. And hear this. The truth is that all of our deeds are laced with some measure of hypocrisy. Not a single one of us is ever entirely pure in heart when we do anything. And God still rewards us. That's incredible. But we are told here that we must beware of this hypocrisy. Let me, let me ask you this question, parents. How much hypocrisy do you show your kids? You wonder... We wonder sometimes why, why, why there's entire generations of kids who've grown up in Christian homes and walked away from the church. That's not the, this is not the reason on any specific, in any specific situation or for any specific child. But when you have it culturally, this entire movement of, of these kids who are grown in church and, and nurtured in church and they go off to college, boom, they leave. They're gone. And I would submit to you that it's probably because of the hypocrisy that they see on the large scale. That, that the things we are doing, aren't, we're not really doing. We're performing. We're showing. And the kids see right through it. Because they're there when we wake up. They're there when we go to bed. They're there when we eat. They're there when we get in arguments between spouses. They're there when we do our good deeds and when we, how we treat our Bibles and so forth. They're there. And they see the reality. And then they see how we talk to people. They see what we look like at church. And what we look like at home. May it not be. For us. That our kids see two people. One at church. Before the eyes of men. And one. Who cares very little. About the eyes. Of God. The contrast to this lying. Is loving. The act. Is really being performed. Think about that. When we love, we really are giving. We really are praying. We really are fasting. And we know that ultimately all these acts, as the law and the prophets, all hang on this. Love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the opposite to lying, to hypocrisy, to using deeds to get the praise of men is really love. Loving God and loving others. Through doing things that glorify him, that please him, and that serve our fellow man. And this is hinted at, this idea of love is hinted at by this recurring word, which we love so much. Father. Your father. 
your father. Your father. The Christian should always be reminded that he or she has a father. Busy, busy, busy getting praise. Busy, busy, busy getting approval. But you have a father. You have a heavenly father who never sleeps. Who never ceases to care for you. He loves you and he calls you to love him as Abba, Daddy, Father. And just as everything boils down to love, so also does it all boil down to faith. And that's where we finish this morning. Faithless or faithful. Another recurring word or idea in these verses is reward. For the showy, you've received it. You've already gotten it. You sought the praise of men, you got a little praise, there you go. That's your reward. But for the secretive, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now last week, we discussed that the eternal heavenly rewards of God are replaced with fleeting earthly rewards when our deeds are done before men rather than God. There's this rewards, reward replacement. But here I want you to see something really important about rewards. Because in Gospel Community Group this week, we got into a discussion about the nature of rewards. You know, should we do things for rewards? And how is that, you know, if our motives are really for, for, for rewards, even if they're heavenly rewards, are those pure? There's a lot of questions that are opened up by this. What are the rewards going to be? I mean, if we're all saved and in heaven and have Jesus, then what else could matter? A valid question. A valid question. But we're told this throughout Scripture, that rewards do matter. And that we'll understand that in the life to come, how, how and why they matter. Part of the reason they matter is because God's just. He repays good for good and evil for evil. And in His justice, He rewards good, even if He was the one who brought it about. But here's what I want you to see. In the, in the discussion about rewards, what are they? What's the nature of them? How do they motivate us? Let's kind of go beneath that question. To the question of faith. Because ultimately when we're talking about rewards. We're talking about faithlessness or faithfulness. We're talking about being unbelieving versus being believing. Romans 14.23 says. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Showy. Faithless. Secretive. Faithful. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith it is impossible to please him for Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you hear that? That to, to, to look for the reward is folded into the meaning of faith. That those who would come to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That he is just and he is good and he keeps his promises. For the showy, in general or in, the, or in that moment, there is a lack of belief in God. Here's what I want you to understand as we leave today. When we do our works in these ways, before the eyes of men, we are in that moment showing a lack of belief in God's existence, God's promises, God's goodness, God's justice. And it is in this state of faithlessness That the loss incurred has to be replaced with some kind of tangible gain. I want you to see this. This is so important. Think about it. In that moment, when you give up some of your money to help the poor. When you give up some of your time to pray. When you give up some of your comfort or satisfaction to fast. In that moment, you're feeling a loss. There's a loss incurred. And here's what the unbelieving, faithless heart does. 
Well, I don't like that very much. But I'm going to weigh this thing out. Lose a little money, gain a little reputation. Lose a little time, gain a little clout. Gain a little approval. Gain a little celebration from my peers. And see, what happens in the life of the unbeliever is that tangible, temporal things have to be replaced with tangible, temporal things. Because that's all there is in that moment of unbelief. And for that unbeliever, that's all there is. And so we just replace one with the other. Lose a little of this, that's okay. Because I gained a little bit of this. But God is real. He is real. He is in the secret place. He does see. He does keep his promises. He is good. He does reward those who diligently seek him. Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I believe that the extent to which we believe this is the extent to which we will be quite content to do everything in the secret place. The extent to which we don't believe these things is the extent to which we will need to replace that loss with some earthly gain. Because we don't really believe in this God, our Heavenly Father. If we do believe... Then find your heavenly father in the secret place and care only about his eyes. Only his eyes as you live the Christian life. Let's pray. Almighty God, heavenly father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are and you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you and that when we are doing our good deeds in secret, you see and you know and you will reward us with yourself forever. Not because we did good deeds, but because through Christ's death, we've been made righteous in your sight and we've been given your spirit. To fill us with his righteousness every day. God, we ask that you will make these teachings from our Lord Jesus real to us. We pray now that these words will not fall on rocky ground. Or on ground that can be strangled out by thorns. Or shallow earth where it cannot take root. But God, we pray that these words will go down deep into our hearts, that we'll be changed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.